Hello, and welcome to Tales from Mysteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And in today's episode, we're going to be reviewing Season 6, Episode 22, The Ballad of Booth. Yes. Which I do not know what that means. So in today's episode, I will be breaking down the episode and leading us through all of the events, and Joel's going to give us his trivia. Do you have anything to start us off with? Sure. So this episode aired on the 9th of May 2010, and it was written by Bob Daly and directed by Larry Shaw. In the flashback to Angie's college class, the periodic table names elements up through Mitnerium. And the last six elements shown were not actually named elements until the late 1990s, which is years after this scene was taken. That is some nerdy trivia. (laughs) Yeah. So some of the elements that were found in the late 1990s that appeared on this periodic table, but should not have appeared on this periodic table, are this is going to be fun because it's going to try and make, I've I've got to try and now read out these elements and they're not humanly possible pronounced words. Darmstadtium. Mm hmm. Roentgenium, Copernicium, Flerovium. Oh, that one's quite easy to say, actually. Flerovium. Livermorium. That was also easy to say. And Organesson. Those were some of the elements. I've never heard of any of them. <laughs> Can you cook with them? Probably not. Oh, okay. They're elements, not spices. Okay. Or herbs. So the title of this episode comes from a song with the same name in the Stephen Sondheim musical Assassins. The character of Detective John Booth, who guest stars in this episode, as portrayed by Rick Pascalone, is named so that the title has some connection to the episode. Oh, I didn't even pick up on it. Vic Polizos, who appears as Detective Turner in, I'm assuming, the Brie scene, when she like sits down with the ex-detectives, which we'll get to, mm-hmm. is married to Christine Estabrook, who played Martha Huber. Oh, weird little connection. Yeah. Uh, number one songs this week were Oh My Gosh by Usher featuring Will I Am, which was in the US, and the UK was Good Times by Roll Deep. I don't know what that is. I've never heard of that song. Pretty generic number ones, really, in yeah. my opinion. Well, we say that. Neither of us have heard the UK number one. No, but around... So can't really call it generic. Most of the number ones for season six have been a bit generic. Yeah, they have. On Sunday, the 9th of May, a Chinese man is freed from prison 10 years after the man he had been convicted of killing is found alive. Oh my god. Yeah. Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, announces his intention to resign as leader of the Labour Party and calls for a leadership election to be completed by September. It's quite funny that when one of the Labour Prime Ministers chooses to step down, he calls for an election. Yes, that is interesting. He didn't just have like five different Labour people coming in a row. Yeah. BP sprays more chemicals into the main massive undersea oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico using a deep sea robot in an attempt to thin the oil which is rushing from the seabed at a rate of about 210,000 gallons per day, which equates to about 795,000 litres. Oh god, they're fighting the oil with chemicals. Yeah. It just keeps getting worse. Chemicals to more chemicals. Oh my god. Not much happened this week, so the only other things I've got... Are on Tuesday the 10th, the con- which is a day after, I will point out. I had, oh no, two days after. I had Sunday and then I've got Tuesday. 
the Conservative Party's David Cameron kisses the hand of Queen Elizabeth II to become the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, marking the beginning of 13 years of the Tory party slowly gaining control over every aspect of this country, bringing us to today, with house prices impossibly high, interest rates around 6% plus, extortionate food and fuel prices, and privatised energy companies taking in bigger profits than they've ever had, whilst everyone in the country has to try to decide between heating the house they can no longer afford the mortgage or rent on, or having three meals a day. Yes, also you have to kiss the hand of the Queen. Before COVID, I think it was a thing. And then after COVID, they stopped the whole kissing. And then obviously that still didn't help because Liz Truss shook her hand and then she died the next day. So that's basically it. Since that day, since Tuesday the 10th of May 2010, we have been ruled with an iron fist by the Conservative government. And if you're not getting what I'm saying right now, this is a cry for help. (laughs) So everything started going downhill when season six came to an end. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So... Previously, Eddie killed his mother and Lynette may be getting dangerously close to the truth. Sam threw a vase in front of Bree, revealing a violent side to his personality. Susan finally discovered the extent of Mike's debt. Angie spoke her truth about Patrick Logan to Gabby on a plane. And Patrick ran over Nick and threatened Angie and is currently sleeping in her guest room. Yeah, because he needs her for something. Yes. So, we're going to start this episode with Susan. Susan's story starts with Mike asking how she's doing with the paperwork, and Susan says that she's been looking at it all for, like, three days, and she's confused. We then find out that Mike hasn't been paid by some of his clients as times are hard, and apparently they'll pay when they can. So, Mike is clearly too nice to demand payment, but Susan says that she can do it for him. And Mike doesn't think this is a good idea, but Susan starts pretending to cry and proves that maybe she can be a bit more convincing than he can. Everybody knows you can't just get work done and then not pay for it. Yeah, who hires someone and then just doesn't pay them because right. times are hard? Like, surely, Mike... Can... I'm I'm not sure what the legal system is like in America, but in the UK, if this were to happen, a company would invoice you, and then if you don't pay it, they take you to court... Yeah, that's the thing though. Mike is freelance, so that would be quite difficult for him, and he probably wouldn't even be able to afford to take them to court. True, that is true. Like, I just, why are you doing this work for free? Like, no wonder they're in trouble. If I was Susan, I'd be royally, if I found out that you had been doing this, I'd be royally pissed off. Yeah, no offence, Mike, but there is a difference between being nice and neighbourly and being a chump, and having people walk all over you. Yeah. Susan visits the client for payment, the first client, from four months ago, but the guy doesn't seem to be able to do it as it's a bad time, so Susan lets out the waterworks. She talks about health insurance and worries about MJ getting into an accident one day, but the guy isn't very sympathetic, leading to Susan trying a different technique, which is anger and threats. And we have a clip. Look, lady, I don't know how to tell you. I don't have the money, okay? Just leave me alone. No, I'm not going to leave you alone. You owe me money, and I'm not going to rest until I get it. I'm going to make sure everyone in your life knows what a deadbeat you are. When you go to work tomorrow, I'll be there. When you go bowling with your buddies, I'll be there. And when you go to the video store to get your porn, I'll be Okay, okay. Write you a check. Naturally, Susan threatening to just appear in every place that you ever go is enough to make the man pay up. Yeah, she enjoys being the bad cop as well, you can tell. Yeah. She loves it. But, like, it's just, I don't care if it's a bad time. I mean, Susan rocks up, he's like, oh, this really isn't a good time. I don't care. 
Like, I, don't, I just don't care. You ordered a service, you got that service, and so you pay for that service. Like, don't get it if you can't pay. She then does this with another client by getting a bit mob boss on her and starts threatening to break the woman's prized ornaments. She goes to another client who says that she'd have to go down to two meals a day to pay for the medicines that she can afford and that she has nothing at the moment. But Susan points out that she has a nice watch whilst smiling just a little bit too much. The last woman that Susan speaks to is really unfortunate. Because she's like, oh, I'm I'm having to cut down the amount of food I eat just to afford my medicine. Like, it's not her fault the American finance and health system is fucked up. Mm -hmm. So she's just caught between a rock and a hard place. When she gets home, she shows all of the money to Mike, as well as a big bag of items that she's repossessed from all of the clients. A menorah. What's a menorah? It's like the Jewish thing where you put all the candles in it, isn't it? Oh, right. I don't know. I'm not Jewish, so I don't really know the... The importance uh, of of the menorah. Mike seems a little concerned by Susan's tactics, who seems to have enjoyed letting out her inner bully just a little bit too much, and then gets a bit demanding and wants bully sex from yeah. Mike. And then she tries to open up a bottle that's not a twist off. Yeah, that was embarrassing. Mike then kills the mood for her and reveals that the IRS have pushed the deadline forward for all the payment, so she's going to have to do something about that too. They were doing so well... Well, they were probably not even making a dent, really. No, but they were on their way, and they gen- they had a plan, and they were working towards it, and it seemed to be fairly positive for them until the IRS moved up the date. At the IRS office, Susan does what no one should ever do and claims that she pays her taxes, and so technically these people work for her and she's their boss. I've got a friend who um, worked in a police call centre, and this language really pisses people off and they are not going to be willing to help you after this don't there, say this are there genuine people out there that say this people i just say thought that to it was public like, service people all the time i just thought it was like a tv trope like i've never known a single person to to say that well now you know it's real oh god this leads to the irs actually adding extra penalties without pushing back the deadline they then pull up at home and wonder what they should do and susan says that they should sell the house now, that's a very big consequence of... Uh, it is. Like, in the whole show, this is a really big consequence. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is one of the main housewives that is leaving. One of the ones that have been there since the beginning. We've had characters come in and come out, but none of the main four housewives have ever left. Susan tells this news to the other ladies who are shocked that she's going to be renting somewhere away from Wisteria Lane. An apartment. Mm. She's going from this house to a tiny little flat. They try and convince her to stay, and they even offer her money to help with the financial situation, but there's nothing they can do. Susan's found a flat by the school, and also behind a petrol station or something, and she is moving away. So that's the end of Susan's story. And she's moving away. She is moving away. And even though all of the ladies sit there and say, oh, well, we're going to stay in contact because, you know, they people always say they will and they never do. There's that brief moment where you're just kind of like, oh, is this the last we're going to see a Susan? Now let's go on to Bree's story. Bree and family are discussing the Sam situation and how scared she is to fire him. But Andrew isn't intimidated by the guy, although maybe he should be because Sam is bigger and a bit crazier than him. Yeah, Sam is crazy, but Andrew lived on the streets. Yeah, but Sam's got nothing to lose. I mean, I say let Andrew get involved. Like That's a fight I'd love to watch. Orson says that if they can't scare him, then maybe they can use their wealth. 
which is very, <laughs> very brief. Yeah. But Andrew clearly thinks that this is a dumb idea. Yeah, Andrew wants to get Marines involved. And I say do it, because that sounds way sexier than money. Bree has a chat with Sam and talks about a trust fund for Andrew and Danielle that Rex set up, and then she says that it isn't right that he left out Sam. She then passes him a check to apologise for Rex, which Sam is thankful for, and then she very politely fires him. It gets rough, as she says it's a family business, and he's not really part of the family. Ooh. And Sam responds by ripping up the check and saying that he isn't leaving, and threatening Bree by saying that if she tries to get rid of him again, she'll wish he hadn't. He's really scary here, because he seems so volatile, like the way his voice quivers when Bree tells him it's a family business and everything, it's just, he's like, when Bree says, oh, please don't be upset, this is after all a you know, family business, and he's like, but I'm part of the family. Mm. And it's so like, it, it's like a deranged voice right there. Later, Sam goes to Bree's and finds a couple of old detective friends of Bree's who she did some work for. They all have tea whilst the men talk about the man they looked into who was threatening a nice lady, and then they saw the situation was very frustrating at the time because these days they'd use different tactics and they'd talk about the violent ways they would dispatch the guy. Well, yeah, now they're not detectives anymore because they've retired. They're like, oh, yeah, no, now we don't have the rules to play by and we can do this. And they kept bringing up these like opportunities for what they would do to shut a person up and not get caught. Although... One of the detectives does say, oh, you get the phone book and you ram it into their Adam's apple. And I'm like, I don't know how you get away with that. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit, well. I, I do love this scene because the intimidation from the two cops is everything. And then Bree's conservative interjections, mm. like whilst they're like talking about this and he, where the cops are like, oh, you know, we had a situation before and we couldn't do anything and we felt so helpless. And then Bree's like, that must have been so awful. Scone. And then she just comes in and... <laughs> Sam walks in on Bree doing the washing up, giving her a proper jump scare, and Sam says that the threats from the detectives got him thinking, and then he says that he wants Bree to hand over her company. How would that work? Sam doesn't cook, and we've already seen that Bree does expos and cooking demos. Everyone knows Bree as the face of Mrs. Vanderkamp's cooking, or whatever her company is called now, I can't remember. So the only way that this would be successful is if that changes, and Sam changes the branding which will likely not go down well. I mean, let's face it, we've all seen how Twitter has successfully changed their branding, haven't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who really wants the brand to change to, oh, look, it's a preppy white guy. Yeah, unless instead of using Bree's face, they create almost like an avatar of Bree. But I just don't see that working. I don't see Bree's target demographic resonating with an avatar of Bree when what Bree's target demographic would want is the real thing. They want I, the woman. They want the the real the real deal. They're not going to gel with Sam either. No, they won't gel with Sam. But this is Sam's problem now, and mm -hmm. maybe we'll find out about it in the future. Who can say? Yeah. She says no, and Sam says about how Danielle got drunk at the, his welcome dinner, and she spilled some secrets, including how Andrew ran over Carlos's mother, Juanita Solis. All those years ago. And this explains why at the beginning of the episode, which we haven't got to yet in the podcast, but we have a scene with Carlos and Gabby, and it is brought up that Carlos's mum was run over by a car. And it was so that the audience could be nicely reminded 
that Juanita Solis, the OG Juanita, was hit by a car and killed. And now we can be reminded of who did it. Exactly. Because you'd watch it and you'd be like, oh, yeah. Now we're going to move on to Gabby and the Bolans. So Carlos is leaving for a commission worth 40 grand. So he's going to be away for his birthday. This also leads to a fight between them as apparently Gabby makes terrible lasagna. So he'd rather go out for dinner when he gets back rather than her cooking him a nice (laughs) birthday dinner. (laughs) I know the audacity of me saying this, but how can someone make a bad lasagna? I did make that exact note because someone in this scene, I don't remember who said it, but someone said it's a hard dish to make. And I was like, it's really not. It's just minced meat, tomato sauce and pasta sheets. I think Carlos said it was a hard dish. Oh no, Carla said you just don't make it like my mama. And then Gabby was like, oh, that's because your backstabbing mother didn't give me the recipe before she died. I don't think it's a hard dish to make, personally. I know, I mean, I cook every single day, so... All right, rub it in. No, I'm just saying maybe (laughs) I don't represent what should and shouldn't be difficult for beginners, but I don't think it's that difficult. I think you can do it, guys. You can do it. Weirdly enough, I'm criticising Gabby for not being able to cook a lasagna. I probably couldn't cook a lasagna because I don't cook. And it was one of my choices for gayest moment to have Gabby as the gay that can't cook. So... I get. I know there's. I know there's some form of audacity there with me calling her out for being una- unable to cook lasagna, but also <laughs> uh, relating to her more than I've ever related to her before. But so it turns out that his mother Juanita made great lasagna before she was run over, and Carlo says it's a hard dish to make, which is untrue. So the point of the scene, as well as to say that Carlos isn't going to be around for whatever's about to happen between Eddie on one side and Patrick on another. True. Like, he's not going to be around to protect Gabby, basically, so we know Gabby's going to get in some shit. Yeah. But also to remind the viewers that Juanita's, his mother, was a hit-and-run victim by Andrew. Yeah. Juanita Senior. (laughs) Angie has trouble sleeping as she dreams of her life and the choices that she has made, and girl, I feel ya. She's probably had trouble sleeping due to the fact that she's been handcuffed to the bed, and that's a really awkward position to sleep in. I, I don't even know if she knew that she was handcuffed to the bed. She was, like, handcuffed to the bed. and Like, nobody can sleep with their arm above them all night because it I, I, something to do with the blood flow, obviously. It messes up the blood flow in your hand because your hand is obviously above your head. Yeah, I've seen Gerald's game. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. all seen it. She dropped out of college, joined a group of eco-terrorists, and let herself fall in love with the leader, Patrick Logan, but we already know this. Notice in this shot of her and Patrick, it focuses on her then unscarred back. Yeah. As well, it's, you know, drawing attention to that. So she built a bomb for him too. We then see her wake up in front of Patrick, who has her handcuffed to the bed. He calls her scar beautiful and says that she should be proud of it and for what they accomplished, but Angie feels bad because of the man that was killed. Patrick seems upset that she stopped loving him, but she claims that she never did love him. We then find out that he isn't killing her because he needs her to make him another bomb. A few things. This scene has the cringiest line delivery moment, in my opinion. Which one? Which is from poor John Barrowman. I'm really sorry, John, but your acting in this scene was just a little bit sketchy. When he's staring at Angie's scarred back, and then she, he says, oh, I'm admiring your scar. And then she pulls her shirt back down to cover the scar up. And then he goes, what are you doing? You should be proud. <laughs> and it was the most underwhelming line reading i've ever heard <laughs> yeah you didn't get another take of that he didn't like there was no. there was no pride there yeah 
So Patrick is telling Angie about a development in Oregon planning to cut down a bunch of trees and how he wants to stop them, and Angie says that she thinks he's a big phony. Mm. <laughs> she says that Nick showed her what a coward he really is, but before Patrick can get violent, Gabby shows up to talk to Angie. She asks for a lasagna recipe, and Patrick introduces himself as Gabby's brother. And Gabby is instantly flirty. Yeah, it's like that Susan scene all over again, you know, the one with E.D., where Susan's held up at gunpoint by Zach, mm-hmm. and now we've got Angie being held up at gunpoint by Patrick, and then Gabby walks in. Yes, exactly. This is also where Gabby notices that the recipe says to use fresh tomatoes, and Gabby asks if she can use sauce from a jar, which doesn't go down well with Angie. No, you can't just use sauce from a jar. no. You can't just use sauce from a jar. Why not? It's so easy to make sauce. It's so easy. Yeah, but people just don't have the time or the patience to make sauce. Yes, they do. No. Sauce is so easy. Fresh tomatoes, blend them up, add some herbs and spices, bish, bash, bosh, cook it. Come on. Um, you mm. do not want jarred sauce. Do you know how much sugar and shit is in those things? Absolutely not. Yeah, and they taste great. Uh, I just Gabby is hilarious in this scene and Patrick needs to learn to loosen up like he's lucky that it was Gabby that came over because I'm sure any other housewife would have looked at the stuff on the table when Patrick was like oh Angie's fixing my remote and been like a remote Mm. with this shit on the table this is not a remote sir they managed to get rid of her after giving her the recipe and Patrick makes a dig about how he would have bombed her by now if he lived here (laughs) He's like, how do you have so much patience? <laughs> I know, it's a little bit extreme, uh, Patrick, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, you know how to build a bomb and you haven't used one on her yet? It's really extreme. <laughs> Angie's trying to sleep when Danny walks in, and apparently Angie texted him and told him to get home as soon as possible. So she then tells him to run, because obviously she didn't text him, but it's too late and Patrick walks in with a gun. We cut to Danny being tied up by Patrick, who says that he wants them to get to know each other, but Danny isn't very receptive to Patrick and just friends to kill him if he ever gets untied. Traditional father-son relationship, he says, with Danny tied to a chair. Patrick then leaves and visits Angie in the lounge making the bomb. Apparently it's slow progress due to the handcuffs, so he lets her hands out. And then Gabby shows up again. Gabby says that she needs a test run with the lasagna. Angie takes it to the kitchen, cuts out a piece, and she, she's trying to write a note to sneak into the food, but none of the pens are working. <laughs> no, and this scene has the best line of the episode as well, where Gabby's with Patrick and she's going through her modelling photos on her phone. And she's like, oh, and this was when I was on the cover of Vogue and this was Milan and oh, that was my daughter Celia. I don't know how that one got in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now the runway years. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was great. And if he needed more encouragement to bomb Gabby, that was it. The, even Patrick judged her from that. And he has his child tied up to a chair in the bedroom. Yeah, he's like, wow, you're a horrible parent. <laughs> <laughs> you're awful. How could you? Don't you have any shame? <laughs> Angie manages to sneak the note eventually and gives the lasagna back to Gabby, who takes this a bit personally. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> and she leaves. Gabby then gets home and throws the lasagna in the bin, thinking it's a lost cause. Mm. So later on, we see that Juanita and Celia dished the lasagna out of the bin and ate it. Gross. Eating out of the trash. Come on, girl. Yeah, Gabby's pretty grossed out by this. Um, And then Celia coughs up the note that was in the food. Apparently, like, that was... Ugh. 
So Gabby picks it up to find the message, Danny and I held hostage, no cops, get Nick. Yeah. And that is where Gabby and the Bolan story ends. Dun dun dun. Yeah. This is basically what I was saying a few episodes ago, because I was like, oh, it's like Gabby's not really getting any storyline at the moment. She's really got like, she's just kind of there, which is what we have mentioned a couple of episodes ago. And this is basically why I was like, oh, it does start to get interesting with Gabby again, because they rope her into Angie's storyline, which we could, I guess, see coming from a mile off, considering that she's the only one that Angie has been honest with Mm -hmm. about they have a friendship that develops. Yeah. So naturally she gets roped in because the stakes are higher that way. Yeah. And then finally we have Lynette's story where things get very wrapped up and frightening. Yeah. So we see Detective John Booth who is unhappy as he can't figure out who is killing all the women in Fairview. We then see his victims on a board with Julie who survived. Emily Portsmith, the coffee shop girl, someone called Ramona, who must be the sex worker, but... Possibly. Only a Ramona, no surname. Um, Although there are two ladies who are just Jane Doe's, so one of those could also be the sex worker. Yeah, maybe. So we've got two unidentified victims, a Ramona with no surname. Anyway. The Fairview Police Department need Adrian Monk. They really do. He would find Eddie in a heartbeat. Mm Mm-hmm. He then gets a call about a woman's body found in the woods and goes to investigate. And we can assume that this is Irina or possibly his mom, Barbara. At first, I thought it was his mom. I completely forgot about Irina. We then cut to Lynette, who says that she went to see Eddie's mom, but that she wasn't there. (laughs) And that the neighbours haven't seen her for days. Eddie says this is normal, though, and that she's probably just out on a bender and she'll return in a few days. The detective and his partner later on visit Lynette and ask about Irina, and we have a clip. Do you know what Irina Kosakoff? Unfortunately, yeah. And whatever you think she did, she did. I'm sorry? She's a conniving, manipulative little grifter who put my son through hell. She's dead. What? Are you serious? We found her body earlier today. She was murdered. Oh. What's going on? Ah. Uh... These are policemen. It's about Irina. Oh, boy, that didn't take long. That little bitch can't even get out of the country before she was taken from us too soon. Nice save, Tom. You really need to stop laughing every time we listen to this clip and the detective says, she's dead. I'm not laughing at that bit. I'm (laughs) laughing at when Lynette goes, what? (laughs) Because it's like the sudden shock, but also like, oh, shit, what did I just say? (laughs) Yeah, this this probably wasn't the best thing for the parents to be saying in front of the detectives. Yeah, I guess it's a good lesson. Just like, be careful what you say about people before you find out why detectives and police officers are at your door. Well, yeah. They ask about Preston, and Lynette and Tom think that this is due to concern, but the detectives imply that he is a suspect, naturally, after everything that's happened, but also generally, you suspect the partner first. Well, you do, but what they said, I thought, was interesting which was that they suspect Preston because Arena had a letter that she had written to Preston on her when yeah. they found the body. Now, we didn't see a letter. No. We, as an audience, did not see Arena write a letter. So, did Eddie write a letter? Or did Arena just happen to write a letter before she left? But she left. Like, so surely she'd have written the letter and left the letter and not write it and take it with her. I think Eddie wrote the letter. Which, yeah, leads me to believe that Eddie killed Arena and then wrote the letter and dumped the body to ensure it doesn't possibly link to him. 
But that is quite smart. And so far, Eddie hasn't really been the smartest when it comes to killing. He's just been lucky. Could you imagine Eddie writing this letter and <laughs> in his head, he's doing her voice like, Preston, <laughs> I am leaving. Writing it like she pronounces the words. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think it's a shame we don't hear more about the note and see some actual actual good detective work, though. Yeah. But this isn't a detective show, so I'll let it slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eddie hears this whole conversation from upstairs and he looks a bit concerned. So, boy's getting busted. <laughs> yeah, it's all starting to unravel for him. Lynette gets off the phone with Porter when Eddie comes downstairs and says that he needs to move back for home for a little while while Lynette and the family deal with Arena's death. He says that they should just be a family for a little bit, and Annette says that she already sees him as family, but Eddie says that his mum is going to need him around when she gets home. Lynette then tells him that he's welcome back once his mum gets home, but Eddie says he probably won't be coming back, so she hugs him goodbye, and he says that he would have turned out so differently if she were his mother, and then leaves. It's actually really sad. It's really sad really sad like it's so sweet that eddie finally got some love from lynette and this is probably the best thing and i think eddie knows that it's the best thing it's very fight or flight and eddie knows it's too late yeah well yeah yeah but as in like it's the best thing for him to leave lynette um Mm. right now and it's fight or flight because if he doesn't fly now everyone will find out and then he'll have to fight lynette and that's what he doesn't want and he probably, yeah, he just doesn't want to have to fight Lynette. She is the only person that we have seen in this show that has showed real care for Eddie without it being something transactional. Yeah, since Mary Alice died. Yeah, Susan wasn't really transactional either. No. She was genuinely trying to help Eddie build a career as an artist. So actually, really, it's only Brie and Gabby that got something transactional from yeah. Eddie. <laughs> yeah, it is incredibly sad. And I do wonder if he would have turned out differently if Lynette brought him up. Monsters are made. Exactly. I do think that he would have turned out differently if he'd had a better mum. So, Lynette and Tom are at the police station while Preston gets questioned by the police. Apparently, they wanted to clear up the timeline of when he was in Europe and he met her, etc, etc, blah, blah, blah. Mm. He gets out and talks to Lynette and Tom about feeling guilty as she might be alive if things had gone differently between them, which is a very natural human response. Mm. He then does a walkout. Lynette then overhears the police officers talking about another woman's body found in the woods, and apparently it's Eddie's mum. Barbara Orlovsky. Yeah. It must be quite tough for Preston, like, being so young and having all of this happen, and he probably doesn't even know how he feels, considering that he obviously ended things with Irina, like, things didn't end very well with Irina, so she's died, and he probably feels like he should feel bad, but maybe he doesn't feel bad, and that's probably confusing him as well. Mm. So, poor, poor kid. Lynette goes to Eddie to tell him about his mum, but before she can say anything, he tells her to stop worrying as he just got off the phone with her. Cue the threatening, scary music. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I would have thought this was like a realisation moment for Lynette, especially with the music, but... (laughs) Anyway. Oh, well, that's a relief. (laughs) Yeah, so Lynette's a bit confused and has a sit down as Eddie says that she's at his uncle's and he's going down there now. And Lynette then says that the police must have got their name wrong and says about how they found a body and they thought it was his mum's, but it must have been a mistake. And he just spoke to her after all. Clearly, Eddie has had enough of the line and acting and has no response though. And Lynette realises eventually what's happening. So he like had every opportunity to just get away with this because Lynette was just not she wasn't picking up on it it really irritates me like eddie could have just left he could have agreed with lynette 
when she's like, oh, the police must have got the name wrong. He could have been like, what do you mean? Oh, well, they said, oh, yeah, they must have done. I, like, he could have stuck with his thought process. He could have continued with his plan, kept his mouth shut and left and then left to go to a different state before the police even caught up with him. But no, he doesn't do that, does he? He makes no. it obvious he lied. And now Lynette's in danger. Like our Lynette, she's been through enough. She was held up at gunpoint twice, cancer, survived a tornado and now this. I know. I thought it was quite funny because I was like, oh my God, she's not picking up on it. He, he's going to get away with it. But I was also really scared for her. So I was like, okay, Eddie. I don't just... want her to pick up on it. Don't, yeah. don't. I was like, Eddie, just go along with the fucking lie. And then Eddie can, Lynette can get out of there and you can get busted later. Yeah. But no, <laughs> he doesn't want to lie to his mum, his new mum, clearly. No, he doesn't. He says that he wishes that she hadn't come over and he locks the door and the episode ends with a to be continued. Yeah, he like closes the blinds so that no one can now see and Lynette, a pregnant Lynette, is now trapped with a murderer. I was terrified. I was like, not again. I know. She, how many you know, murder death scares does this woman have to take? <laughs> well, I have already done my trivia for the next episode, so I'll let you know then. Yeah. <laughs> so... Now that the episode's over, let's move on to Joel's picks for gayest and straightest moments. So, what do you have for the gayest moment of the episode? My award for gayest moment... It goes to Brie for bringing her strong straight friends to help her fight her battle. <laughs> yeah, good for fair. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure there are gay people out there. I'm, 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 I say I'm sure. I'm positive there are gay people out there that could fight their own fights. But for us gay people that can't, and we need a straight friend in our life to help us out, <laughs> that is relatable. Yeah, I mean, we we rag a lot on how annoying some straight people can be, but we do. us gays do need them for some things. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, very relatable. I understand. Mm, yeah. And then what do you have for straightest moment? My award for straightest moment. <laughs> I've given it to Patrick. I really, I had trouble with straightest moment this episode, not going to lie. Nothing really screamed as straight. To Patrick? Yeah, so I gave it to Patrick for refusing to admit that Angie never loved him and is adam- like adamant that she still does. It gives very, like, straight man arrogance, like the whole, oh, of course she likes me, I mean, look at me, bro, kind of thing. That's pretty gay, too, <laughs> How is that gay? Oh, I've met some gay men. We've all met gay men. <laughs> what do you Whether mean? you know it or not, guys, just saying. Although it is a very, there is also those awful straight people that think that every gay guy would fancy them. Yeah. Which is hilarious, because they're always the ones that are, like, toads. Yeah, or trolls. Or toads. Get, get back under your bridge. Yeah. You... No gay man wants to get with you. Yeah, you bridge troll. So there we go. those are my awards. And now we move on to B's awards for best and worst parent. So who do you have for the best parent? I didn't redo really one this episode. I, I couldn't really think of anything for best parent. Um, I could have given it to Lynette, but it's pretty much the same stuff as previous times I've given it to, to Lynette with Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't really do it this episode. And then other than that, there wasn't much to go on. Okay, so B doesn't have any awards. Yeah, I have a worst parent. Oh, you do have a worst yeah. parent. Oh, okay. Who do you have for worst parent? So my award for... Worst parent of the episode. It should really be absolutely no surprise, but I gave it to Patrick Logan. <laughs> for tying up his son. This just, this isn't how you reveal to someone that you're their dad. It's hey, probably that's, the, that's not Patrick's fault. This is the worst way to reveal to someone that you're actually their parent that I've ever seen in my life. That's not Patrick's fault. Yes, it is. He messaged him to come round and then walked into the room with a gun. Angie and Nick have had ample opportunity to tell 
Danny everything. There's also tying him to the chair. Yeah, there is the tying him to the chair, but that wasn't the reason that you said you were giving him the award. That's not quite what happened. I was going going to go through my list of reasons. Oh, okay, That was the second reason. Okay, fair. So, yeah, bravo, bravo, fucking bravo to everyone who had an award tonight. That was season six, episode 22, The Ballad of Booth. If anyone has any questions, queries, comments and theories, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review. And you can also email us at boyfriendsreview at outlook.com. And the artwork is done by our friend Louis, who you can find on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign. And he also has a link to his Etsy page where he does commissions. Join us next time when we'll be back in your ear holes with Season 6, Episode 23, and the finale mm. of Season 6. I guess this is goodbye. I know, we're there, we're at the finale, we're at the end of season six. Yeah. So, see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.